This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Welcome to episode 28 of Aviation Careers Podcast. You know, when speaking about careers in aviation, we spend most of our time discussing commercial and private aviation, but there are numerous aviation jobs with the federal government. One of the more fascinating jobs is investigating accidents. Today, I have with me someone from the National Transportation Safety Board to discuss the job of accident investigations and the various federal jobs relating to aviation. But before we begin, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Audible. It's important to keep motivated and informed when you're pursuing a career. One of the best ways to increase your knowledge and keep motivated is to listen to books during your downtime, such as commuting to work, running on a treadmill, or walking through the park. One of the great things about Audible is that the first book is free, and there's no obligation to continue the subscription. You can cancel at any time and keep the book. Audible helps support this website, and I encourage you to visit Audible at aviationcareerspodcast.com slash audible. There are many great books you can listen to, with one of my favorites being 48 Days to the Work You Love by Dan Miller. I encourage you to discover your true potential and keep motivated by listening to audiobooks. Again, you can download your first book for free by clicking on the Audible icon or by going to aviationcareerspodcast.com slash audible. Joining me today is Bill English with the National Transportation Safety Board. Bill is a National Transportation Safety Board investigator in charge in the Major Aviation Investigations Divisions. That's a mouthful. Bill has a varied background and extensive knowledge in the area of instrument procedures and design, which he has shared through various articles in IFR magazine. Bill also has been an air traffic controller, a corporate pilot, and he's also a flight instructor. Bill has agreed to join us today to share with us his exciting career as an accident investigator at the NTSB. Uh, welcome to Aviation Careers Podcast, Bill. Well, thanks a lot, Carl. It's, uh, it's very good to be here, and Happy New Year. Hey, Happy New Year. I, uh, you know, where where are you today, by the way? Is it cold where you are? Uh, a little bit chilly here. I'm just outside of D.C. Uh, NTSB headquarters is downtown Washington, D.C., uh, so I'm talking to you right now from just about under the downwind leg at one right at Dulles Airport. Downwind runway. Okay, one right at, at Dulles. That's a, I tell you, I love Dulles. There's some really cool stuff going on there, especially a museum right on the field there. So I guess you get to visit that every so often, I assume. Absolutely. It's uh, it's about 10 minutes away from me. Yeah, and that's the Udvar Hazi, the uh, museum with the Smithsonian. It's absolutely wonderful. You know, Billy, it seems like just from all the different things that you've done that you truly are passionate about flying and about aviation. Uh, how, did, how did you actually develop this passion for aviation? Well, uh, that's absolutely true, Carl. I probably like a lot of folks, uh, well, of my age anyway, I don't know about yours, but I grew up as, uh, you know, like a lot of kids did, building model airplanes, just fascinated with uh, anything that flew that, uh, you know, I could put together and, and fly. I guess, I suppose probably when I was about 10 or 11, I'd build model airplanes crash them, put them back together again. And well, one thing leads to another and many years later, but uh, just like a lot of kids, I did have that, uh, that fascination and also fascination with, uh, with maps used to love to get those, uh, you know, charts in the national geographic magazine. You remember those maps in there? Love those. And uh, so that always uh, 
made me like the idea of travel and, and just, uh, just getting anywhere, getting, you know, that little kid in a small town idea. Of course, as I grew up, you know, as a teenager kind of drifted away from that as, as you know, a lot of you know, teenagers and so on, um, get other ideas, other, uh, things of importance and never really knew what I wanted to do with my life in that age. But, uh, during uh, college years, I actually got an internship with a traffic reporting network. Actually, started with the reporting part of it, um, just like it sounds. Traffic reporting, flying around, looking down at traffic jams and people smacking into each other on the highways. Well, after a little while, of that I realized, you know, I kind of like the flying part better than all the rest of this. And uh, after the course of a summer, bartered, yep, actually bartered doing uh, producing. Uh, radio commercials for uh, my time, my flight time. And through a pretty intense summer, started building up my ratings through the big switch, changed over to uh, to aviation. And I now have uh, my undergrad degree is in aeronautical science. Um, and I did many, many flying jobs after that, starting out as that flying rubberneck uh, traffic reporter. So like you mentioned, some corporate flying, uh, flight instruction, uh, electronics testing the valve, some navigation work. And, um, I guess as we keep going through that, uh, you know, I did a lot of different types of, of flying there. And then one day again, cause we didn't have something like aviation careers guiding through. So sort of stumbled into a lot of these things. I remember someone bringing me a magazine advertisement or something. I said, Hey, look at this. They're hiring your traffic controllers. And you know about airplanes and you can talk. And I said, well, you're right. I can. And uh, on a lark. Took the uh, took the test for air traffic controller, and lo and behold, I passed. Passed through the screen, became an FAA controller for a while. Did instrument procedures design as well for the FAA, and quality assurance and investigations as well. That's sort of like like the police internal affairs, if you're familiar with that. That's what quality assurance is in the FAA. While doing that, got involved with the NTSB, working alongside them in some investigations. And I got to know the folks there. And in 1999, they uh, they called me up and said, "Why don't you come on down? We've got a we've got a spot down here." And I've been at the uh, the safety board since 1999. Started out in operational factors, and uh, about five years there, moved up to investigator in charge, which is where I'm at now. You know that sounds interesting. That whole you had a real varied path uh, to to your career now and. You obviously didn't quite design that path, but it sure sounds exciting. It sounds like you enjoyed the whole ride along the way. Oh, absolutely. It was a great ride, and uh, and I, I love where I've ended up. Yeah, and that's, you know, something important that, that out of your story that I heard is you, it doesn't necessarily, you don't know all the time where you're going to be tomorrow. And certain things come up, and you have to jump on them. It sounds like you've done that a few times. Uh, especially with your, air, you know, first of all, starting out with traffic. And now you, instead of being the reporter, you're in the, you're in the other seat actually flying the airplane. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Got to, you know, make sure to keep your eyes open and, and be flexible. You don't know when a, when an opportunity might come along. Yeah. It sure is a varied path. Now, now you're here since 99. You're, you've been with the NTSB, but the, the currently you're in a position. It's called investigator in charge at the NTSB. Could you explain to us what exactly is that an investigator in charge and what, what do you do? Absolutely. Um, talk a lot about the board here and, and what we do. That's a, um, people will say the board, the NTSB, the uh, investigator in charge in major investigations where, where I'm at is basically the leader of the go team. I think most people have, have heard of, uh, of the go team in, in movies or the news or whatnot, which is our, 
our dispatch team that responds to a major accident, air carrier accident in the U.S. or or some other high visibility um, accident or incident in the U.S. And we also support the uh, treaty obligations with overseas accidents as well. So a lot of air carrier um, major events that are related to U.S. manufactured aircraft or um, U.S. operators that happen overseas will uh, supply a go team for that as well. So the job of the IIC really is a project manager. We put together a team of a number of technical specialists. And yes, we really do have those windbreakers like you see in the movies. Um, <laughs> so we put that team together. Um, and depending on the nature of the accident, it could be a three or four people, could be up to 10 or 12 people, uh, depending on the specialties. And uh, we grab our go bags and hop on the plane and, and head head to the accident, start that investigation right there. And, and my job really is to ride herd on all of that, lead, lead that team, make sure everybody's covering all the aspects of that, deal with all the other parties involved. There's a lot of dealing with, uh, obviously, a major airline, um, big uh, operators, big uh, manufacturers, airframe manufacturers, engine manufacturers. Um, it's almost impossible now to have a major air carrier event without some kind of international connection as well, international manufacturers or operators or something like that. So it is a great big team project management job. That's from my standpoint. And then there's all those other jobs that uh, go on in the board as well that we can talk about too. Yeah, sure. And now with this investigator, uh, you can get called out at any time. As a matter of fact, before we started the show, you actually had to take a phone call about an incident. And, uh, you know, you never, like we could be talking right now and all of a sudden something happened and you, you have to go, right? Uh, that's correct. We do a, uh, we do a call rotation. So for the major, um, investigators like myself or someone who's a technical specialist at, at headquarters, we might be on call for a week or two. Um, and then off off call for a couple of weeks after that. So we have to be ready to respond within two hours uh, to the accident. So for us here in D.C., um, the the big one uh, type of scenario, we'd have to respond within two hours, grab that go bag and get down to Washington National. And we can hitch a ride on an FAA jet if that's available. Or uh, we have to make arrangements to travel uh, another way and get uh, – Get going off to that to that accident. So you have there's a real team involved here. So there's because you know we always see in the news the investigators and all, but there's there's a lot of other jobs at the NTSB, and you may have touched on some. You said FAA jet, so that's someone at the FAA flying that. But what else is right. there, and as far as NTSB is concerned, job wise? Okay, uh, the NTSB is a tiny agency as far as federal agencies go. We're, we're probably about the smallest. There's only 390 people that work for the NTSB. The whole NTSB. That includes the politically appointed board members way up at the top, all the way down to the guy that pushes the cart around in the mailroom, 390 people. And that's divided up, not just aviation as well, because we cover other transportation modes. So we've got highway, which cover heavy trucks and and commercial buses, that sort of thing. Marine uh, folks will investigate oil tankers and cruise ship type accidents, Uh, hazardous materials, uh, rail. Uh, so a lot of uh, you know Amtrak or uh, uh, freight rail accidents within the U.S. So we, we're divided up somewhat there as well with the modes. And then we also have our laboratory that supports all modes. Those are the folks that do metallurgy, 
other types of uh, scientific studies like that. We have fire scientists. Um, that's also where our recorders lab is. The folks who read out the black boxes, the flight recorder and the cockpit voice recorder. Other transportation modes also have recorders as well. Trains and, and large ships have, have black boxes just like airliners do. So our lab there reads those out. Um, in aviation, we have about 125 people total out of that 390. So there's a small number of people in just about every uh, specialty. So the major investigators like myself, there's five or six of us. And then we have specialties, technical specialties at headquarters in operational factors, which are basically air carrier pilots. Um, we have meteorologists, um, air traffic controllers. Um, in our engineering division, we'll have a structure specialist, so people who know the actual the, the structure of the aircraft, the skin and the and the spars and and all that goes into actually building an airframe. And they also are uh, will work on composite materials as well. Um, systems specialists on hydraulics, electronics, um, avionics um, within the aircraft. Uh, power plant specialists for both piston and um, turbine engines, of course. Uh, we have survival factors, which are the people who work in the cabin safety area and also things like airport fire and rescue and other airport operations. Uh, human factors is um, another big area as well. So we have human factor specialists who will really interface with just about any other specialty in aviation. And actually, our other modes have uh, human factor specialists as well. Uh, I think I covered pretty much all the technical specialties there. So those are the folks who would work at headquarters and would be where I might pick people from for uh, an aviation accident. And then I could go to the lab as well, the research and engineering division, to pick others. The recorders support, we might need uh, an aerodynamicist. We've got a, a number of those. We call them vehicle performance specialists who can really get down into the the, the nitty-gritty of the detailed aerodynamics that happen in an accident as well. Um, so I build the team from that for a major accident. The other part of the folks who work as investigators for us are in our uh, what's called our regional operations division. Most of those are not in the D.C. area. They're scattered out about the country, uh, and a few in Alaska and Hawaii as well. And those folks will work on mostly non-commercial general aviation accidents. Their teams will be much, much smaller. They probably won't have much support at all from other NTSB folks, maybe one or two of those technical specialists if they really need it, and then maybe a local FAA uh, FISDO-type inspector, um, and then a representative maybe from the relevant manufacturer, from Cessna or Piper or such. When we go out on a major team, we've got other folks with us as well from outside the agency um, we'll talk about the, the party system. Are you familiar with that at all? Yeah, I've, I've heard of it, but what, what does that mean so our listeners can understand that? Okay. Um, well, as I've mentioned, because we're so small, you know, my team might only be, like I mentioned, eight to ten folks even on a big team. We can't possibly know everything about every aircraft and about every situation that can possibly develop in an accident. And although we keep our independence, we need to leverage the resources from the other um, entities, if you will, the other organizations that have an interest in that accident, I mean, a vested interest. So if we're working on, I don't want to pick on a particular type, but we'll just say because it's common, we're working on a Boeing accident. Right? Uh, we'll have Boeing introduced as parties to our investigation, and they'll sign, sign on an agreement that basically those folks will come from 
the manufacturer to work with us. They basically put on an NTSB hat for the, the period of that investigation, and they're assisting us bringing the technical resources that we need to look at that aircraft. The operator might do the same thing. The airline will come in. They'll bring in some of their specialists in operations, dispatch, maintenance, whatever it might be, that really know the details that are inside that operation that we couldn't possibly know every single one of of every of every airline. So we need to bring them in, and those folks will also be in the position to make a safety change. We discover something during that investigation. They're going to be the people that are in the right position to go back to that manufacturer, that operator, whoever, or the FAA. The FAA is always there with us as well because they can make regulatory changes. Any one of those people can go back and make a safety change right away as soon as we find it without having to jump through a bunch of hoops and, and take a long time in, in discovering the information. Well, that's that's a great idea. I mean, that that's terrific to have all those people in there. Uh, you know, I guess you have you know, pilots, you have people from the airline, and they when they see something and say, hey, even before you come out and say this is what we suggest, and that could take you know quite some time to do that, they can implement change right away. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's exactly what it's for. We don't have to wait for a final report or uh, jump through all the hoops to make a recommendation. And that's one one thing about the NTSB. We can't make a regulation. We can't make a law. All we can do is make recommendations, and that helps us stay independent. We're not we're not the regulatory and oversight authority at the same time. We can stay off to the side and be that sort of watchdog. You know, it's interesting while you were talking about all this, where you know, all these other people from these parties come in. It seems like an accident is like a big jigsaw puzzle. But instead of you doing it by yourself, you have all these other, you know, like your friends doing a jigsaw puzzle, but with lots of expertise. And you're able to put that puzzle together a lot quicker, I assume, by having someone who's an expert in this and that and the other thing. That, yeah, that's exactly right. We, it would take forever. And I don't know if we could even do it just with a, a, a small team. There, there would be things about, uh, especially with new technology, that we wouldn't possibly be able to know otherwise. Now, when you're talking about this team, uh, just to get our, our heads wrapped around what happens, this doesn't happen overnight. I mean, most people that have seen investigations, I guess the biggest uh, comment that I hear is that it takes a long time for investigations to be completed. So how long would it take to finish an investigation normally? Yeah, we like to say for a major investigation, an air carrier type investigation, it's about a year from the date of the accident until a final report is actually all ready uh, to put out. And there's some, there's some process behind that. The, the actual, uh, the tin kicking, we call it out on the, out in, in the fields, the initial response probably takes about seven to 10 days. So that's that rapid response that we talked about. The, the NTSB go team gets together. Um, in that first few hours, we'll be contacting the, uh, the appropriate parties, uh, so the FAA, the manufacturers, the the operator, let them know what what the plan is, where we're going to meet to stand up that initial field investigation, and we start gathering information right away. Now, as you probably can guess, the first things that we get in the first few hours, our main source is going to be eyewitnesses and media, so we take a bit of that with a grain of salt. But at least we've got a general idea what might be going on, so we'll start to pull some information about that particular aircraft or operator or so on. So the the process out there on scene is to first secure and manage the site, make sure that we understand what's what's happened out there, 
where where the wreckage is, where the data is that we need, data that might come from air traffic control radar, that might come from weather and so on, uh, and start to gather all that up. We'll send part of the team to, uh, say, the operator to gather up maintenance records and things like that. Uh, generally, the manufacturers can support us with bringing along um, maintenance diagrams and, and so on about the aircraft. So we can start piecing it together there on scene. We generally don't, you said jigsaw puzzle, and I know you meant that figuratively, but a lot of people think that we do these great big, you know, mock-ups and we actually piece together every little tiny bit of skin of the airplane. That's, that's mostly in, in the movies. We don't do that all that often. Now, everybody's probably seen pictures of our TWA 800 reconstruction. That's the 747 that went down off of Long Island back in 1996, where we did actually piece together quite a lot of a 747. We still have that, actually. It's at our academy out here near Dulles. Oh, wow. um, folks who come to our academy classes and occasional tours can go and see it. But that's the whole reason we kept that is because it's so extraordinary. So normally what we'll do on scene is we start with finding what we call the four corners. So nose, wingtips, and tail of the airplane. Uh, make sure we've you know got that basic perimeter of everything that we need there. You know, did we have an in-flight breakup or something like that? It can be answered right away. So we start from the four corners, work our way in, documenting all of the aircraft. While meanwhile, interviews are taking place. If we have surviving crew members, if we have other um, folks from the airline, uh, training pilots who might have worked with the flight crew, and so on, gathering eyewitnesses. So there's a lot of activity that goes on right there on scene. That's that initial... Uh, sort of detective work, figuring out what. After that uh, seven to 10 days, and I could go on for hours talking about this. I don't want to use up all your time. No, no, it's fascinating. Uh, but, uh, and, and we could certainly get into that. Some of the, some of the details, some of the accidents that, that I've worked on, we can talk about some of the, the older ones that are closed out in a little while. Um, but then what takes, so like you say, what takes so long? I mean, a lot of folks, they know the military standard. They have to put out a report within 30 to 60 days. Um, and their folks are basically dedicated. When when a military investigation board stands up, uh, those folks are dedicated to doing just that and only that, nothing else for that thirty to sixty days, um, which which is a great luxury that we don't really have. Uh, my folks, when we come back from the fields, can be scattered out amongst their other projects as well, and then we have to work with all those parties. What do you do if you have more than one going on at the same time? How do you manage all that? Oh, that. Yeah, that's one of the, uh, that's one of the prerequisites for being a, a major investigator is they, they make you juggle, uh, during the interview. Yeah, you definitely have to be someone who can manage your time and multitask. Um, I don't know any investigator that's got less than six or eight projects going at any one time. So we may need to do, uh, laboratory testing, some of which can be done at our lab, some that needs to be done with the manufacturers and the, the subcomponent manufacturers, for example. So we might need to tear down engine components or actuators, something like that, to figure out what's going on. And some of that takes time to get everybody gathered together and off to do that. So we're probably in that that 60-day window before that gets done. And then the part of our process that's very different than the military that does take a lot of time. And, and I actually – I graduated the U.S. Air Force um, mishap school as well, so I'm very familiar with both processes – um, because we have that party process, we have to make sure everybody's included. So everybody gets a shot at our data, at our test plans, 
gets to participate in everything that we do going forward. So there's nothing that's invisible to the airline or invisible to the manufacturer. Everybody gets to see everything that's going on while we're in there to make sure everybody gets a fair shot at it and we're not just you know, focusing too much on one aspect of the accident. So that can take a bunch of time as well. And then writing the the subject matter reports. So I kind of hinted at this, but I don't know that I made it really clear that when we make this this team up, right, and we go out there on scene, I'll have uh, – we'll just – we'll make it simple and say I just have three specialists who come with me. So I'll have an operations investigator, a pilot, and then maybe a power plants investigator – and a uh, and a cabin safety investigator. I'm just making something up here. Right. As we get out there, they will have people join them and form a group for that particular subject matter. So my operations investigator might get a a check pilot from the airline who's rated on that aircraft, and then he might get a test pilot from the manufacturer who knows that aircraft type, and they'll form their own little subgroup and concentrate on the operational factors of the event, and so on and so forth. The power plants person will bring in someone from the engine manufacturer, and and they'll you know manage tearing down the engine, maybe uh, coordinate some metallurgical work or, or something like that. So each one of those groups themselves creates a report of their subject matter, very detailed with, with um, references, diagrams, test results, and everything. So all those reports get compiled into my final report. So I end up having to take in sometimes six, eight, or ten of these factual reports, we call them, and merge them together into making one big final accident report. How long is that report? Gosh, it must be pages. It can be very, very long. A, a major accident report, um, one of my larger ones that we did was the Continental Airlines 737 in Denver a couple of years ago. I think that final report uh, runs well into 150 pages long. So combining with that one, meteorology, operations, human factors, weather, we had all kinds of issues to compile together in that, uh, in that accident report. And all that stuff as well is public. So we have to be able to make all those factual reports suitable for the public, we have a public docket procedure so that not just the parties, but the general public can see, I'll say most, not all, but most of the factual information that we gather. Obviously, there's some technical proprietary information that we can't just stick out there on the web. But for the most part, our work is actually done in the public eye. So when you're doing this report, so I understand, say someone finishes a report, that actually has to be made public right away? There comes a point where we will open the public docket. One of our, one of the steps in our process is called a public hearing. So for a very large accident, we might have, uh, prior to the whole report being done, a process that's somewhat like a grand jury hearing where the board members, which are the political appointees who are right at the top of the board, um, will actually um, host that and staff like myself and the other investigators We'll, we'll bring out experts and some of the party participants. And that's where we might first open the public docket with material that we already have. That's where you'll see for the first time the transcript of the CVR, if there is one. And we'll actually take sworn testimony there. We don't do that for everything. That only happens for the very large cases. If we don't do a public hearing, when we get half or more of the relevant factual reports in, 
um, usually it's quite a bit more than half because obviously the first ones that are done are the easy ones that aren't that important for the accent. But uh, when we get enough relevant reports in, then we will open that public docket. We're not done yet. There's no report that says um, probable cause is blah, blah, blah. But a lot of material is out there already for the public to see, uh, for anyone that's interested to see. And if there's a CVR transcript, that's just the written part. We never release the audio. Um, the written part will be part of that as well. Um, just uh, as an example, right now, the time that we're recording this is uh, you know, early January. I'm working a, a case that's a semi-major case, a helicopter accident that occurred in Las Vegas last year. Our docket is open. So you could go in there now, look that up and see um, interviews with training pilots. You can see laboratory tests on hardware and so on. But there isn't yet a report that says probable cause is X. That will happen at a at a meeting called our Sunshine Meeting or Board Meeting on the final report. That's going to come up in about a month from now where the board will actually hear from us the whole report will make a presentation on it and what we propose as the probable cause. And if we have recommendations that weren't put out earlier, recommendations for corrective action in the future. That's public um, occurrence. Anyone can come and see those. And, and that's, again, part of that, you know, the government doing its business in the public eye, not behind closed doors, you know. Well, one thing that comes to mind while you're doing this in the public eye is that everybody can get a hold of this information and the media and people that, that, you know, the pundits, et cetera. I could imagine how many opinions must come in after one of these dockets is put out there. Like there's got to be so many opinions on the news media, et cetera, when these are published, especially in a big accident. Oh, that's exactly right. Uh, you do see that. We field a lot of uh, requests from media. Of course, they all want us to give away, you know, a probable cause prematurely, which of course we won't do. Um, but, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, especially the CVR, people seem to gravitate towards that, uh, right away. That's very, um, very juicy for the media to, uh, to read the CVR. And, and sometimes they will take that out of context, of course. Right, right. And that's, you know, because I guess people are fascinated by that. But, uh, you know, I actually get to listen to some of the CVRs and, and I, I actually rather li uh, read the textual format because sometimes the, uh, the, the actual listening to it, the audio is a bit traumatic, you know, for, in some of these events. Um, but, you know, it's, it's quite interesting though, all these different things you do. It's, but, you know, it's been neat that you've gotten so granular and, and kind of brought us into it to exactly what you do here. Seems like, you really need to know how to communicate. Obviously, you can, but that seems like a really important part of your job. And I assume that if anybody's going to apply for this, they really either have to have a degree in it or you better be able to write and, and talk. Absolutely. Um, that's one thing I I'll talk to new folks a lot or when I do any kind of training on, on Go Team. A lot of times I'll go out and give Go Team training to some of the air carriers as well, folks who might be uh, brought in to be part of their their go team in a in a response and have to remind them when you're on this team no matter or you've come maybe you've come to the board to work for us or you're working as a group member you're now an investigator investigator first you used to be a pilot you used to be an engineer you used to be a mechanic you bring that resource to us but for now you're an investigator and and that really is a communications job. You're taking something that can be intensely complex, very technical, and and bring that out very clearly 
Because if you don't communicate exactly what went wrong properly and clearly, how can you possibly fix it? Right. Sure. Now, you just talked about all these different people and coming together. I mean, it seems like you, you could be just about anything and become an investigator. You know, what? gosh, what kind of experience would you need and what type of education would you need to become an investigator? Well, it really it depends what, uh, uh, you know, what kind of track you take. And we've got some folks with lots of different background. Um, you know, I talked a little bit about my background. You know, educationally, my undergrad is in aeronautical science. My graduate is in geospatial intelligence. Uh, which is a little bit different, but we already talked about my uh, navigation and, and map background and all. Some folks come from that operational side. We have uh, uh, aeronautical engineers, of course, aerodynamicists, folks who come from industry as that. We've got uh, folks with a, a mechanic-type background um, that that come in. So, we tend to break down into two tracks, sort of an operational track and then a, an engineering or airworthiness track. Um, but I, I know folks with uh, – in, in our major investigations branch, the folks who do what I do, we've got myself, I told you my background, a former Navy structures engineer, a Cessna test pilot, a Coast Guard ship captain, an aerodynamicist, uh, you know, all kinds of different backgrounds come in there. Now, the it, it's interesting though. So you pretty much have to – you have to have some type of uh, at least a bachelor's, it seems like, and, and probably a master's if you want to to be competitive to to work at the NTSB. Uh, it, at the headquarters level, I would say yes, um, and definitely uh, you need to get in at the regional level. We do actually bring some folks up through internships from some of the aviation colleges, oh. so they might be folks who are working on an aeronautical science degree or something like that with some of the bigger aviation schools and a number of our uh, very good investigators have come up, started as interns with us, you know, maybe unpaid intern for the summer or something like that. And then eventually, you know, worked their way into becoming uh, a regional investigator, working some general aviation accidents and, and gone on from there. You know, be before we move away from the NTSB, because you have so much knowledge in other areas too. Uh, first, I, I want to ask you this, what in the world is a is geospatial intelligence. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, it's sort of, uh, it's maps on steroids and using <laughs> geographical information, uh, geographic information systems in, um, in analyzing, really you can analyze anything. Uh, GIS now is part of the background to a lot of the FAA next gen programs with advanced, uh, navigation can also be used in, in other, um, intelligence, intelligence as in like military intelligence. Uh, fields as well, analyzing population movements, terrain effects, and and such like that. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. That sounds really yeah. interesting. Yeah. The, uh, the you know, but before we move on, I, there's when we've talked about the NTSB and and those type of jobs, and I want to. It sounds like you have a background in, in air traffic control and other aviation jobs within the FAA. I just want to talk a little bit, but just a little meat and potatoes here about uh, the. You know, you have to make a living too, and uh, not giving away as far as what you make, but in general, these are these are government service levels, and I think you can start as low as a GS two and go up to GS eighteen. Is that true, or whatever the level is? Um, that's the highest. Yeah, I, I think G, the highest GS is fifteen, 15 and then there's some scales above that for managers. But you're absolutely right. That's a it's a government GS job. Uh, some of the government 
aviation jobs. Like air traffic control has its own sort of scale, which is a little bit different. And it changed since I left ATC, so I don't know the details of that. But we at the board are in the GS scale, and you can start at, like you say, GS something pretty low. Actually, with intern, you're GS zero, basically. Right. <laughs> but uh, that, that's, you know, that still looks great on a resume. Um, sure. You know, you managed to intern at the NTSB. Um, so the GS schedule is it's published. Anyone can find that on, on the web. I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. But but a senior investigator will be in the 13, 14, 15 level, depending on his background and, um, and what type of uh, – you know, collateral jobs he has. Uh, so after, after some years, you can, you can get up there pretty good. Um, you know, for, for those listeners that have been under a rock for a while, the federal budget uh, issues are, let's just say a little bit fluid right now. So I don't, I'm not going to go out and predict what's going to happen in the, in the future, but for right now, it's, uh, pretty steady in the, in the, the high GS levels once you get in. And of course, there's uh, there's pretty good benefits that go along with that as well. You know, it's interesting when I did my research on the NTSB and and the different uh, various levels of of uh, employment. There, it it really does vary depending on if, like you said, you're an intern all the way up to the management level. Um, as far as air traffic controls, I can actually speak a little bit towards that. I like to use the the Bureau of Labor Statistics there, and ATC air traffic control as of May of 2010. A median income, 108,000. Uh, and with the lowest 10% making 54,000, the highest 10% making over 165. So, so that's kind of the range there. Uh, as far as NTSB, again, uh, you'd have to look up those, those GS levels on, on the internet. So yes, you can make a good living though, is what we're, we're trying to get at. Better than average working for the NTSB as an investigator. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, ben- the benefits are there as well. You know, you get, uh, Various insurance and leave and everything right off the bat, so that's not bad at all. Yeah, and we'll we'll have some links to to what we talked about as far as those those salary ranges, etc. And you know, everybody hates to talk about salary, but you know, you got to make sure you can make a living at whatever it is you do, and and you can, you definitely can do that here. Um, now, you obviously you you like your job, right? And the NTSB, obviously, it seems like from from what you're saying. Oh, absolutely! It's the that's the best thing in the world. Yeah, it, it looks like a blast. But uh, yeah. I noticed you left the the air traffic control job. Maybe I know it's been a while, but what did you like about being an air traffic controller? That was a that was a great and uh, and challenging job. And like I say, my my knowledge there is a little bit out of date. So I guess that just gives you a subject for another podcast. But uh, I was a radar guy in in some pretty busy areas. I worked around Boston and New York, and I I really liked that idea of being able to you know, see something and make a difference right away. I mean, it was something different all the time and definitely very mentally stimulating and challenging job to do. And, and you really got to interact with, uh, with all the people that you worked with on a daily basis in the, in the uh, aircraft, the other, the other controllers and so on. I, I found that uh, very fascinating. You know, and, and this is probably a unique question just for you is that air traffic controllers, they have to actually, juggle a lot of different plates at the same time and and now in your job you talked about how as the investigator you have to juggle quite a few things are they comparable do you think um i'd I'd say yeah that ability to multitask i think you need that in both positions for sure right right well you know bill this has been great that you talked about the ntsb one but one thing that i think a lot of folks are don't realize and you had mentioned this beforehand is that there's a lot of other jobs in aviation, federal jobs in aviation, lots of federal jobs. And, and what, what are a couple of them that you can think of? Well, that's a, that's a great point. I think a lot of po- folks think um, 
military or ATC is about what there is out there in the, in the federal jobs in aviation. And, and that's not true at all. The, the federal government, I think probably if you added all the aircraft together, uh, never mind the military, would probably be a pretty big airline. Um, there are a lot of government agencies that operate aircraft and work with aviation as well in law enforcement, fire, um, research flights. Well, think, for example, NASA. Uh, we think of NASA as spacecraft, but NASA has a huge aeronautics division as well. They operate a number of different airplanes, uh, all the way from they have a DC-8. They've got some various tactical fighter-type aircraft they do research with. They do a lot of unmanned aircraft, and we can talk about that some later. That's a collateral duty of mine and another great field to uh, to look at. Um, NOAA, the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, doing weather research with uh, – they have Gulfstream P3s and other, uh, I think, Dash 8s or Dash 6s they operate. Um, the FAA itself has a pretty good fleet of aircraft as well, not just the uh, the business jets that we hop a ride on sometimes, but their flight inspection aircraft who go out and inspect navigational aids, flight check uh, instrument procedures and, and radar sites and so on, all the way down to things like monitoring wildlife for the – uh, Department of Interior Forest Service. Uh, Forest Service does those uh, firefighting uh, flights as well. We see those a lot during the summer, dropping uh, flame retardant or spotting for uh, fire departments on the ground. Uh, law enforcement, such as FBI and Border Patrol, all operate aircraft as well. And I could go on and on. There's uh, and then all, all the support jobs that go with that. All those outfits that operate aircraft, they also need dispatchers and mechanics and so on as well. And as a federal employee, I guess, doing all those jobs, you have to be willing to move towards uh, the areas that have those jobs, I assume. You know, it's not, not real regional, I'm assuming. That's, that's probably true. Um, obviously, the, you know, the wildfire and the, the wildlife folks are going to be out west and so on. NASA, you'll probably be at, at or near one of their centers. One thing about the um, most of the federal jobs, um, at least how it goes right now, also give vets preference. So folks who were in the military, and you didn't have to be in aviation in the military, um, just be a veteran. Uh, you'd get some uh, preference as well for hiring. Oh, great point. Great point. So if you have a background there, you know, obviously you get some preference there. I mean, there's a lot of people that do have that type of background that are coming out. So good, very good point there. You know, another point you brought up that's pretty interesting. I, I'm in the Tampa Bay area in Florida and they have NOAA that's out there with those dash sixes doing whale watching and manatees and all. And they, it, it's, you don't even realize that they do all these things. And this, you know, your federal government doing this. They're counting manatees. They're counting whales and in conjunction with other federal agencies. It's just fascinating how many different jobs there are. That's right. That's right. And there's, uh, uh Associated with that as well, a lot of contractors that are out there uh, also, uh, there's a lot of civilian companies doing work for the, the military or other uh, agencies as well. Uh, again, a lot of the firefighters, um, a lot of military activity. Um, you may see aircraft that look like and are shaped like military aircraft that may actually be civilian aircraft doing work now, such as aggressor squadron work. Um, refueling for the Navy is almost all done by contractors. Uh, people flying electronics aircraft in things like Learjets that are testing radar sites and, and things like that. Yeah, it, it, it is amazing. You know, I've actually been a contractor twice, uh, to the, to the national or federal government, one for the Air Force and one for NOAA. 
And those jobs are, they're terrific. I mean, they, they really, they pay. That's for sure. Their checks don't bounce. And, uh, and, but, but there's so many out there and you just have to be out there looking for them. And, uh, I, I don't think people really realize that. As a matter of fact, that's one of the, I should do that. I should put a list on my website. It's just all these different jobs that you can have, uh, in aviation in the federal government. You gave me a great idea there. <laughs> so, right. It's going to be a long yes, list. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, now, getting back to what you do in the NTSB, now let, let's switch things around a little bit. You, you, uh, we talked about federal jobs, but there's other accident investigation careers that are outside the NTSB that might be relevant to your trying to get a job in the NTSB and vice versa. Can, can you think of some of those jobs possibly? Sure. Um, if we go back, uh, you remember I mentioned the, the party system. A lot of people work, uh, as collateral duties with their uh, existing job at, say, an airline or a manufacturer, and we'll set up a cadre of people that will be there to investigate accidents or other incidents. Airlines have little bumps and bruises all the time that the NTSB does not get involved with doing an investigation. It may even not rise to much attention at all with the FAA, maybe fill out some paperwork for them, but they happen all the time. Internal quality type of investigations that manufacturers and, and airlines do. And there's folks at those companies that sometimes that's all they do. They just specialize in doing flight safety or operational safety. They'll have different titles and different companies, but will be conducting investigative activity for those particular companies. They might, they might be an ex-line pilot who gets into that. They may be a data analyst type person who goes into the airline to do just that sort of thing. Those folks are sometimes where we get our investigators from. We've got a number of people who've done that for airlines or manufacturers and then come on to the board. Uh, another area where people do investigations similar to our accident and safety investigations are in insurance companies and legal firms. Uh, we're doing our investigations for safety purposes, but we have to be realistic. There are also other motivations out there and insurance companies have to be uh, certain of what they're paying out on there we may not like it but we know that there are uh, civil litigations and sometimes even criminal litigations involved with aircraft accidents and there are folks out there who conduct uh, investigations of their own separate from NTSB or FAA to uh, to satisfy those needs as well so there's a, a lot of activity out in those areas also you know, I was just thinking while you were saying that, I guess, say you got into this, you know, working as an accident investigator in aviation and you decide, hey, I want to I want to go into something else like insurance. Uh, I would assume that there's people in the insurance industry that are outside aviation that your skills, that skill set you have here at the NTSB could transfer into. Uh, I guess, uh, what do they call those? The, the people that go out and actually they'll look at the accident and say, OK, this is what we're going to try to pay out and this is the probable cause. Right. Uh, the claims adjuster, claims yeah, adjuster, adjuster exactly, yeah. yep. and uh, that that would be something too. So if you're thinking about a job in accident investigations, you know that that could be something you could go into later if you decide that aviation isn't your thing. So just like everybody has a varied path, they might get in and out of that career. I don't know if you know if anybody's done that, but yeah, you know. um, I know a number of folks they'll retire out of government and become consultants for that. And I do know investigators who came from insurance companies to work in. Uh, uh, I know a fellow that's pretty high up in the FAA did exactly that. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, my, my uh, fiance, she works for a company that investigates uh, 
rides, you know, carnival ride accidents and oh, stuff yeah. like that. And it's, it's, you, you, I never thought there was such a thing, but hey, you know, accidents happen in every aspect of life. So mm-hmm. the, these skills that you have can transfer anywhere. But, but I think if you're going to want to go into aviation, you really have to be very specific there because, uh, there, there's some things you need to know about the, you know, the aviation speak that we have here. That's, that's for sure. Um, you know, one other thing that you, you touched on there and I have a, a real interest in, is UAS, uh, you know, and the unmanned aircraft systems where I, you know, I really feel this is, we're, we're kind of like in the golden age of, of UAS where we're just coming of age of doing this. Now, there's, there are many jobs that are involved in the, in research and into the UAS system. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. You hinted on it before. Uh, what type of things are out there right now that you know of? Right. Um, that's a good point. This is uh, sort of a, a blossoming industry right now. For the most part, a UAS unmanned aircraft, or to use the military term, remotely piloted aircraft, um, have mostly been a military um, industry, if you will, and, and mostly operated overseas, not so much in the U.S. But in the last few years, the uh, there's been a growth in non-military government unmanned aircraft operations. So things like Border Patrol, uh, NASA has a number of research um, aircraft, and then some of the very small ones used for some of the jobs we mentioned before, things like counting wildlife and, and looking at uh, you know perimeters of fires. So that's starting to grow a little bit. There's still a lot of restrictions to where and when uh, such flights can be made. Uh, there's uh, some movement afoot, and who knows how it's going to turn out, but to open some more airspace for some small unmanned aircraft in the, the law enforcement, search and rescue, so on type of uh, area as well. So we jumped on that a few years back um, after a large uh, Predator B, MQ-9 accident down in uh, Arizona. It was a Border Patrol aircraft or Customs and Border Protection to be proper aircraft. And at the time, we, the, the NTSB, um, nobody really knew how to handle this. Is it really an aircraft? Where does it fall in the regulations and so on? So that was a a learning curve for us. Um, we did that investigation and some some hearings and forums on it. I, I came in a little bit late to the game when actually the my predecessor on that got promoted and became my boss, and then she got promoted again. Now she's my double boss. Um, I think it was the day that I wasn't in, so they said we need somebody to handle unmanned aircraft. Who wants to do it? I wasn't there, so I got it. And in the meanwhile, I fell in love with it. I think it's fantastic and fascinating. Uh, I've actually gone all the way to training and flying the Predator B. Cool. Uh, so uh, we've now got the, the regulations squared away. I wrote the investigator's manual for unmanned aircraft investigations, you know, non-military um, investigations. Like I said, I compared that with my uh, uh, Air Force school uh, uh, background as well. So, uh, so we're ready. We've got a, a team of folks that have that as a collateral duty for investigating for whatever is going to open up there in the industry. And it's really the sky's the limit because once you, uh, take the, the human out of the aircraft, you can get all kinds of great designs and do all kinds of strange things with the airframes. There's rotary wing, vertical flight, lighter than air. Um, aircraft that basically make it to space and some that barely fly above the treetops doing just about anything you can think of that would require you to look down on something. So a lot of, uh, as you mentioned, research and development of the, the platforms, research and development on the payloads that go on them, the, the cameras, the infrared, um, all sorts of other various sensors that go on there, radars and lidars and things like that. A lot of, uh, 
research there for folks with a uh, um, you know electronics background or perhaps a geospatial intelligence background. Oh, who could that be? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, Jump in on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so there, there is. It's it's uh, there's a lot of potential there right now. I would not want to predict uh, where things are going regular uh, in the regulatory arena. Um, for those that, that track it, you know, we know the FAA had put out some uh, some feelers for some test sites, and there is some language in the FAA reauthorization to open up the airspace a little bit. All that stuff is still fluid right now, so we'll keep a careful eye and, and see what happens. But it seems like unmanned aircraft are just too good an idea to not have them grow as an industry in the future. Yeah, I, I agree. Yes, and I, I'm glad you're excited about it because I, I, I always felt I was one of, one of the only people that was excited about uh, the UASs. But uh, sounds like there's a few others out there. That's oh yeah. Terrific. And yeah, I, you know, because normally you talk to a pilot and they're like, "Oh my god, I don't want something else flying in the airspace with me." But you know, it, it, it's going to get to that point someday. We just, we just realize that we're not in our environment. We don't allow any type of collateral damage so i think it's going to be very incremental and right. it's it's not going to be like in the in the arenas that we see in the military overseas in a war zone we're not going to subject you know our civilians to that type of a risk i don't see that happening exactly and the, and the jobs are different you know a lot of times you see um, discussion as if somebody wants to fly a predator into dallas fort worth well nobody wants to do that that that's not what they're useful for you know, a, you know, a 10 pound thing that looks like a flying garbage disposal that fits in a squad car trunk is what people want to use. That's just not even going to, it doesn't even play with, with regular aviation. Right. Well, I tell you what, we're going to, we're going to see more come up and, and I'd love to maybe at some point talk to you more about this, the UASs and, uh, and at some point, maybe you could find somebody or, or we could talk about the uh, UASs just as a, as a whole episode, you know, and, and the different opportunities for jobs there. Oh. And, and, That'd be terrific. I can definitely hook you up with some of the, the folks that are developing things, no problem. That'd be awesome. And yeah. uh, I'm sure our listeners would be very interested in hearing about that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's been, been great having you on, but a couple things before we, we close. Uh, I, I really, you know, we touched on some investigations. Is there any one that maybe you could share with us that was, like, really cool just real quickly that you could talk about that that might get our, you know, listeners excited about becoming an investigator? <laughs> Probably about the the most exciting accident I've, I've ever done, and I don't I don't know that it'll ever get topped. Is I worked the midair collision over the middle of the Amazon jungle back a few years ago in Brazil. This was a 737 and a brand new Embraer Legacy uh, business jet, which is basically the E135 as a as a biz jet. Um, uh, collided midair at 36,000 feet over the middle of the Amazon jungle. Um, it was fascinating in many ways. Two basically brand new aircraft with the latest technology on board. Um, we did things like helicoptering into a hole in the middle of the jungle that the local Indians carved out so we could get to the wreckage of the 737. Um, that the uh, Embraer actually, if you're familiar with the accident, the two aircraft um, clipped the wing winglets basically the winglet of the uh, the legacy. Uh, hit the forward spar of the wing of the 737 whose winglet hit the tail part of the legacy. The legacy actually landed. They, they got it down uh, safely and everybody survived on that airplane. And, uh, fascinating, uh, complex, uh, investigation to do with a lot of operational and air traffic issues that really had to get dug into politically was very, uh, interesting to follow. Um, 
a lot of international uh, connection there. The pilots of the legacy were were held in Brazil for 72 days. That created, and um, we can go on and on, but I think people can find this on the internet quite easily. Um, the, the story about the uh, criminalization of that accident as well became kind of a landmark case in the accident investigation world about the criminalization of um, aviation accidents. So I found that very fascinating, and to this day, although the final report's out and are done by Brazil, and our uh, contribution to that report, it's also a public document that goes along with that, uh, the, the repercussions still go on uh, to this day with that accident. So I'd find that one very fascinating from those intellectual standpoints, and then also it was just really cool the helicopter down into a hole in the middle of the jungle. <laughs> well, that says it right there. That's pretty, that does sound pretty cool. A little yeah. scary, I would um, assume, yeah. but that was an, that was an outstanding case to follow. Very interesting. Like you said, a lot of things came up during that. And now, you know what I'll do is I'll have some links out there. Maybe you could find some and send them to me and I'll, I'll put them in the show notes so people can actually see these, uh, sure. and find those. Uh, it's easy to find. I'll put that aviationcareerspodcast.com slash 28. That's the episode number here. Um, but that, that sounded, sounds really cool. And I guess, and there's lots of other stories. You, we could go on for hours talking about some of the really cool stories and different investigations you've been involved with. Uh, but you know, if people do have questions, would, would it be okay if they, if they sent me a question, I could shoot it along to you and maybe you could help us answer it? Absolutely. Not a problem. Awesome. Awesome. You know, before we close, uh, one, one quick question here and, uh, or just a question I should say is what type of advice do you have for, for people interested in, in general, in aviation careers with the federal government, just in general? Well, again, kind of going back to where we started, keep your eyes open. Don't, uh, don't limit yourself. Um, opportunity might come around the corner at, at any time. So something might not look like an opportunity, but uh, try to take a breath and look at it for what it is. You never know what you'll stumble into. Um, I, I have to say I've, I've got pretty lucky, but uh, a lot of that was just saying, well, I'll give that a try. And, and check it out, and that worked out pretty good. Uh, for a, a government job specifically, if you want to get into that, uh, I do encourage people to do it. It's, uh, I mean, you are working for the government. There's some, there's some things there that may not be for everybody. Um, again, be realistic about that. You're, you're not going to be working for a mom-and-pop shop. You're working for a, a gigantic bureaucracy, even if it's a tiny bureaucracy. Um, so that's something to keep your eyes open and, and go into that knowing. Uh, but they can be a terrific and rewarding career when you do that. You know, it does sound like a great career and something very, very interesting. And, and you're in the media spotlight and you get to, you actually get involved with things that, that a lot of people just, just read about. And I think that's exciting right there. And you actually make some type of really positive change, uh, that doesn't just affect people now, but also in the future. And I think that to me, that's one of the, the greatest things about being involved with, with the federal government and also in what you do at the NTSB. Uh, so I just, you know, first of all, appreciate what you guys do. I mean, you've, you've made it, definitely made it safer for aviation. Oh, that's very rewarding. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, and I appreciate your being here with us, uh, Bill. And I, I do hope to, to speak with you again sometime in the future. And, and we'll definitely send some of these, uh, the questions along to you. And, and, uh, you know, if anybody has any questions for Bill, just send them, go to aviationcareerspodcast.com, click on the contact. Ask a question. We'll send it along. He may not be able to answer everything if he's involved in an investigation, but but general questions about the career of, of uh, being an investigator with the NTSB. Is there anything else that people might be able to look towards on the Internet or any books? Maybe we could put some links on here or you can send them to me. 
Uh, sure. Well, the NTSB ourselves, we've got uh, websites, www.ntsb.gov. Uh, you'll have uh, access to all the public dockets, uh, accident reports there, uh, a couple of blogs and other interesting things that uh, go on there. Uh, there's a number of other sites that are out there in, in the public that um, uh, you can keep up on uh, incidents and accidents. Uh, off the top of my head, I know AvHerald is good. Uh, that's uh, avherald.org. Uh, a couple others. I mean, obviously, the other government sites as well, like the FAA, uh, also has an, an incident database where you can uh, browse around and get lost in there for a long time. So I'd uh, check that out. The NTSB also, you can link right uh, to, on our front page to our Twitter feed. Um, not sure how to do that, but I'm sure if you know about Twitter, you can you can get there and do it. Great. Well, again, thanks, Bill. This has been terrific, and I think you've really helped our audience understand. Uh, what you exactly do as an investigator. It's uh, been terrific that you've shared so much with us. Uh, and if anybody wants to, to listen to this episode or wants to subscribe on iTunes, real easy. Just go to aviationcareerspodcast.com, and I'll have links uh, to Bill's uh, suggestions there so you can actually read up on, on what this is all about. And just if, if you're thinking about a career, in whether it's as an accident investigator with the NTSB or anything else, you know, do your research. But, you know, continually move forward and be, just like Bill said, be open uh, to, there's a very varied path. Be open to change. Be open to, to changing direction because, gosh, you know, Bill's had quite the career and he's, he's done quite a few different things. But you know what? It, it's a really, it's really fun and I'm sure he's had a fun ride. And that's something that I always like to tell people is that you really enjoy the ride. Uh, again, the joy talking to you, Bill, and, and uh, hope to see talk to you again in the future. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Carl. Great podcast. Thanks. Uh, This is, uh, again, uh, Carl Valeri with the Aviation Careers Podcast, and this is Episode 28. If you want to find out more information about uh, how you can uh, get jobs and interviews, that type of thing, just go to our Facebook page. That's where I put a lot of that. But if you really want to understand about the different jobs in aviation, come back here. Subscribe in iTunes. It's really easy to do. It's just at the top of the page. Or hit the contact. Send me an email. If you have questions... Please send them to me because I doesn't matter how long they are. A lot of folks ask me, you know, do you do career counseling? Well, the way we do that is you send in a question. I'll, I'll de-identify that question. I'll just use your first name, and we'll use it on one of the shows. And we'll have experts in the field like Bill come in and answer those questions. Another thing is that normally I do this on a weekly basis. We are actually going to a, an every-other-week basis because I actually uh, have to do some training. I'm uh, learning to fly new aircraft, which is something I'll talk about in uh, one of the episodes once I finish that. I'm getting a type rating in a different aircraft. And uh, don't wanna, I don't want to do a spoiler here, but it's, it's going to be an interesting journey. But uh, in the next six to eight weeks, we'll be doing this podcast every other week. Well, again, I appreciate your listening to us. And most importantly, enjoy that journey towards your aviation career goal and safe flying. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although host or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler. All rights reserved.